Welcome to Rogue Bogues, episode six. Myself, Pro, how are you going? Not bad, man. Episode six. That's 10 more episodes than I thought you'd have me on for, man. So uh, <laughs> my life's going pretty good right now. That's some bad math. <laughs> how's things over there? How's it, the world's getting crazier? How's uh, has your life changed um, now that Biden's elected? Yeah, shocker. Uh, a new president and my life's still the same. <laughs> it's, 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 it's shocking, folks, that uh, I didn't wake up and there wasn't rainbows and fucking, you know, and, and unicorns going all over my, all over my front yard. Yeah, it's funny. Bill Burr, famous comedian. I'm sure you'd be aware of him. Boston accent. Boston guy. Yeah, he um he'd always have a good bit about you know no matter who's elected, if you're if you're you know family of four, you're gonna wake up and make the kids breakfast. You're gonna have to change those shitty diapers or nappies, and you're gonna have to get on with life. It's not gonna have any bearing on your life really. I think it's a fantastic point. Whether Trump, Biden, whoever gets in for the common working man, woman, it's it's not gonna really change much. But that's a, a whole separate pod. Um, the NBA. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. A lot's gone on, obviously. I think we'll open with, there was an interesting article from the NBPA, the Players Association, and it was comments about, from Michelle Roberts, who runs the NBPA, about players getting equity in teams. So, you know, if I was to sign with New York, I'd try to negotiate some sort of equity, 1% of the team, 2% of the team. And it was an interesting one because it opens a lot of Pandora's boxes. I think, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think the NBA would be silly enough to allow that, but- I mean, what are your thoughts around all that? Like I've said in prior podcasts with you, you know, the NBA is a a very good partnership with the players in the organizations. Right now, how the structure is set, the players get about fifty percent of the revenue. Basically, if if no one knows, and not a lot of people know how the sort of, I don't think anyone really knows how the money's split up, but how they how it reads is anything basketball related, income wise. All the ticket sales, all the jersey sales, all the sponsorships, all the TV deals are thrown in one pot. It's multiplied up by like 44% of that. And then you divide it by 30 and that's your salary cap. And that's the revenue the players basically have. So they get a lot of money. I mean, the revenue has been rising in the league year in and year out before COVID. And I think that they get they get so much money and the owners make money too. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that people don't understand is like the players get their money and they get their money. Owners get their money through ticket sales and sponsorships and TV deals. And then they have to pay their daily, you know, the monthly nut. They got to pay for their staff arenas, their basketball staff, their business side staff. Flights, hotels. Yep. Yeah. So now you're going to tell player, like players that make a pretty good wage. I think the average salary is up, upwards almost about 9 million bucks. And now you're going to say, okay, they're going to get that. And then- they're going to get their piece of like of a team. My problem with that is, Bogues, then if I if you're getting percentage, like how are you going to negotiate per- what percent? If you're the New York Knicks and you're w- worth $5 billion and say it's like, okay, we're going to give, you can give up to like 0.5% of your ownership to a player in a max contract deal. Well, my 0.5% is worth a lot more if it's the Knicks than it is the Memphis Grizzlies. And I just don't know how you can do that. Plus, you know, the owners take a, a big brunt of, of the expenses, especially like in today's world where, you know, the players are getting their pay. They're getting 72 game checks instead of 82, but the owners aren't making any ticket revenue. They're not, you know, they're, they're getting their teeth kicked in financially a little bit. You know, some make money, some don't, and it's tough. And then what are you going to do also? Like if you need a, um, a, you know, you need a cash call, like if you're losing money, are you going to ask the player, you know, like okay, you know, I need, I need, to, I need two hundred twenty-two thousand dollars to keep the lights on. Like, how's that work? And also, is it how many years you you spend with a team? Like, are you going to sign with a team for five years, get ownership stake in it? Five, like, like a, 
<laughs> and then leave in a year. So what do you do with that? <laughs> or get traded. Know? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, or get traded. I don't think it'll ever happen. I think it's a good talking point, but Michelle Roberts, I think he's out of her mind thinking that it's, there's just so many problems with it. Like you said, you know, 1% in New York is the equivalent of 10% in Milwaukee. So you've got that. And then let's say, let's say you start doing that. We all know it's just going to be max players. So regular NBA Joes, average players, even second tier stars are never going to have a sniff of that. And it comes back to, I mean, the MBPA and Chris Paul running it. The rich, the rich get richer. Like, you know, since Chris Paul's been head of the union, the only players really that have gotten richer are Max guys. You know, the Max has gone from 20 odd million to 40, 50 million. The mid-level exception is somewhat gone as it was back in the day. And now it's it's basically your max guys, and then your second tier guys are getting your 15, 20, and then it basically goes to those small three-year, $10 million deals or those, or those vet mins. So it's it's interesting and you know, also if you have, let's say you have 10, 15 year span where you have three max guys through that period that get equity in a team. Imagine calling a board meeting and trying to get all the NBA players there on time at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You'd have no chance. You can barely get guys to show up on time for, a, no. for an NBA game at times. You better call Jason Bourne and Jack Bauer, motherfucker, because you ain't finding those guys on time. Yeah, an interesting one. I don't. I don't think it ever happens. Like I said, I think it. Um, it'll be a case of Max guys being the only ones really to be able to negotiate that. And then, like you said, it's if they're young, you know, if it's KD at twenty and he gets equity, and and let's say OKC, and then he's with the Warriors five years later. I mean, there's massive conflicts of interest there. In saying that, I would not be surprised if there is a few players out there that potentially have some sort of equity in teams already. You know, I'm talking LeBron with the Lakers or one of those kind of guys. I would not be surprised if there's there's someone in that ownership group that has ties to to a LeBron James. I think he'd probably be one of the only ones in the league, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. I'm not saying it's 100, percent but it definitely wouldn't surprise me. Or at least you know, at least out the door and saying, look, you know, like a Dirk Nowinski, like he he plays 20 years in one team. Kobe Bryant played you know all his career in one team. And out the door saying, look, you know, we're going to give you a percent ownership or 2% ownership. But you're saying that they think you think that's sort of already been spoken about with some players. I think a very rare amount of players. I think the elite of the elite, the LeBron James of the Lakers, I think there's more to it than we know. I mean, it's against league rules yeah. and whatnot, but let's be honest, like Rich Paul and those guys, I mean, there's there's some there's some cherry on that cake somewhere. Um, I, I assume if you really dig into who exactly is the ownership group of, of the Lakers and there'll be a few minority investors there that are somewhat probably tied to clutch, you know, down the rabbit hole through five or six people. And also, Bogues, like if you do this, say you give equity for like 30, for the next 20 or 30 years, how many percent of your team are you going to give up in these deals yeah, exactly. over a 20 or 30 That's period? my point. You like, know, it just- You're going to have the, the, the majority owner is going to have 10%. Yeah, when's, <laughs> when's it stop? Yeah, ma- yeah majority owner is going to have to take a second job at, you know, Burger King or something. He'll be working, he'll be, the, he'll be one of the vendors at the arena. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So moving on, one, one you hit me with, I won't quote exactly what you wrote when you send it to me, but Kevin Porter Jr., you want to explain what's going on there? Yeah, so interesting thing. Obviously a first round pick- 30th pick last season of last year's draft has had some issues off the court. You know, he got pulled over, had some type of a gun charge, uh, marijuana charge, you know, after getting sort of hit with that. Also, two girls came out to say that he he punched some girl and ripped a weave out of her head uh, in some kind of other altercation. So obviously this year he hasn't been with the team. He hasn't been with the team at all. He's been dealing with some personal issues. And then he comes in first night with the team comes in and he finds out that Torian Prince, they gave his locker to Torian Prince and his lockers have been moved probably, you know, moved to 
another part of the locker room where like the lower minute players um, sort of reside. And he flipped out, started screaming, threw some soup, altercation. The GM came in and sort of, you know, confronted him on it. And then he went at the GM, not physically, at least that's not what they said, just sort of, uh, of just a verbal altercation. And then right away, they said, we're either going to cut him or trade him. And they ended up trading him to Houston for a second round pick that's protected to 55. So they'll never see that pick. Yeah, so basically, they gave him away for nothing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Before I chime in, what do you think, Bogues, on that? I mean, I, I did some research. I saw TNT had some good thoughts. I mean, Chuck and um, Shaq had a good debate on it. And what came out there was that, like you said, Kevin Porter Jr. hadn't reported yet this season, I don't believe. So they didn't know if he was coming back, what was going on. I understand his point a little bit as an NBA player until I heard that he hadn't reported. If he was just a, if he was this, he was playing his ninth, 10th, 15th game, whatever, and you you come to the locker room and your locker's just being given away without any kind of prior authorization or even just giving you a call and saying, hey, one of the vets wanted this locker room, I'd be pretty pissed myself. It is a line in the sand moment for him, but considering his history and the fact he hasn't been there the whole season, they're probably thinking, is he going to come back? Who knows? It is a tough one, but. I mean, getting into it with a GM, throwing food, I assume the conversation with the GM went along the lines of, I'm a grown man, that kind of stuff. Probably not the right way to go about things. He had a right to be frustrated, but to the point of trying to go altercation with a GM is probably half your size and in some sort of Armani suit, probably not the best decision. Look, it does happen where lockers do get moved. It's generally done in the off season. If you sign a veteran, a veteran might say, hey, do you mind, take, can I have that locker or, or whatever? But generally it doesn't. It's more... Jersey numbers um, are, are a big thing, as you know. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, a vet gets traded to to a certain team and wants their jersey number that they've paid young fellas 50, 100K cash. Let me get that jersey number. So I've heard that happening, but it's just an interesting one with his track record. Being a young guy, you think after all these altercations and, and indiscretions over the last year, you'd probably at least, like most smart NBA guys that have rough tendencies you you kind of keep your mouth shut until you get that next contract and then you go crazy again but yeah he couldn't even do that so it's a pretty big red flag i mean bogues this guy's had red flags for a while you know, I, my people that that scout you know college guys for the nba to, uh, for nba teams tell me that he had multiple red flags and and disciplinary issues at usc and then he has these issues obviously the background check probably wasn't great surrounding these guys see being in development for as long as I've, I've I've been and dealing with these guys, see, everyone thinks you're a first-round pick, you're going to be treated like Greek freak, LeBron. You know, when you're drafted in the top five, you're, you know, usually everything revolves around you, you know, and it's a little bit easier path. You're going to be treated with a lot more respect than you are as the 30th pick. 30th pick is probably like a 50-50 chance that you even last into your second contract. So now you've got this attitude issue. You know, you've had attitude issue, you probably, you know, probably you grew up with it, probably his surroundings where he's from, but you have these issues. See, people think being a professional basketball player is about making money and getting paid. It's got very little to do with that. It's how, you know, it's being able to do the same thing over and over again and be invested in your craft to be a better professional, not only on the court, but off of it. There's a certain thing, there's a certain standard that you have to abide by, by being a professional basketball player. I know he's young. But this is why with these teams, you have to have development people that spend time and talking to them and telling them the truth about, hey, look, this is your situation. Regardless of, you know, what your attitude is, nobody really cares because there'll be another 30th pick next year and the year after that and the year after that. 
And this is where real development is in the NBA. Everybody, you know, in, thinks development is like working with like a Luka Doncic or working with a James Harden. And those guys are going to get good. It doesn't matter who's working with them. They're great players. But the 30th pick that has attitude issues, that's that's how good you are in player development if you could deal with someone like that. Now, my conversation, if I was director of player development in Houston, I'll sit him down. I wouldn't probably play him for a while. I, I would want to work with him not only at his psychological issues, but also his just being a professional. But I, I would sit him down and be very honest about it. And I'd say, let's, let's play a new game. The game is let's make a deal. I've got, I've got prizes between two doors. The first prize is let's rekindle your basketball career and be a pro, being on time, teaching how to respect people in the organization and how to act presentable to be a professional athlete. What's behind door number two is a, a one-way ticket to Russia, 200,000 rubles, which is about 20 bucks, a Rosetta Stone year subscription, and a half-eaten bowl of borscht, because that's where your <laughs> career's headed. You're going to go overseas and play for the rest of your career, and you're going to be you're going to fizzle out because they're not going to wait for him. They're not going to wait for him. There's a thousand players like him. Everyone say, oh, he's a 3 and D guy. He's a 3 and D guy. I go, you know what I hear when you say you're a, he's a 3 and D guy? In three more months, he's going to be in the fucking D League. Because that's what it is. It's not, everybody wants to look at the stars in the league. But players like that, there's a dime a dozen, and most of them don't make it, especially with attitude issues and then having issues with the law. You have to, you have to not only attack that and, and sort of deal with that, you've got to deal with their issues sports psychologists, have people talking to them and teaching them how to be a professional. I, I, I wouldn't play him for the rest of the year, Bogues. Yeah. I mean, who's he got, got around him as well? That's that's the other big question. But, you know, for the listeners out there, if you're if you're a top 20, top 30 player, teams will deal with your bullshit for the most part um, because yeah. you're, you're the franchise guy and they'll deal with a little bit of it. Second tier star, you probably get a little bit a little bit less than the superstar and then beyond that, you're replaceable. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Like you fuck yes. around. It's like, hey man, like we can get someone to do this from the G League for us that's just going to be happy to be here and be a good locker room guy and that's what it comes down to sometimes. And let's be honest, pro. I think you were more mad at, at, at Porter for throwing food. Yeah, I mean, come on. A fucking soup, especially if it was a cream-based soup. What are you doing? Some clam chowder. Yeah, fuck that. I mean, I'm all in on that. What is it with Cleveland and throwing food? Is that J.R. Smith? Didn't he throw some food a couple of years ago? It must be shitty food there or something. Something's going on with the food. Talk to the chefs. Hey, you've been in Cleveland, right? Trust me, there's not much of that. I was only there for probably 26 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd lose about 38% body fat if I lived in Cleveland. There's nothing to eat in that fucking place. <laughs> All right. Well, the games are still going on. Um, COVID has somewhat affected some teams. There have been a, a fair few postponements, but they're, I mean, the league's trotting along. They're trying their best. They're trying to do what they can. Um, they have phased out the two-person rule, which we broke a couple of weeks ago. So they're trying to do everything possible to not go to a pause or a delay or a stop. And I mean, this just could be the season, it could be, you know, it could be a team that just misses a week's worth of games and then has to make them up somewhere down the line. With that becomes injury concerns. Let's say a team that's like the Celtics that's had to miss a week of basketball now, they're going to have to make that up in a short span towards the end of the season. They could be very important games for them and then you're playing guys high minutes. So I guess it comes down to bench guys staying ready and, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity, at least I see, I'm sure you do, mid-season to that three-quarter period of the season where there's going to be bench guys that we haven't seen before come out and, and really show what they got. Yeah, in a normal season, a lot of these players would be in the D-League. They wouldn't even be with their teams. They'd be away from things. 
I think that it's the next man up in, in mentality. You have to stay ready. You have to stay engaged. Players that would be two-way players that would never even touch the floor are, are seeing 10 or 12 minutes in a rotation. You know, um, guy goes down for a week with COVID, you know, a couple of injuries as well. You're using most of your bench, if not all of it. And it's always been a next, you know, next man up league and you have to stay engaged. Young players, you don't have to stay and, and be up for the challenge. It's a, you know, it's a challenging time. It's, it's, it's a very volatile part of the season where you don't know who's going to get COVID, who's going to get shut down. And someone who maybe didn't think you're going to get time until their second or third season are, are seeing time in the first 10 games of their NBA career. Yeah. And at time of recording, I've got the Miami Brooklyn game in the background and Miami's probably taken the wrath of, of the injuries and, and guys being out of the lineup. I mean, their record's horrible at the moment. They're not looking like they're going to win many games in the next couple of days or weeks until Jimmy gets healthy and whatnot. And they've been a prime example. I mean, some guys, have, other guys have to step up and they haven't been able to, to find it. So that's a prime example of of kind of what, what this has all done. Yeah, I agree. It just like, you know, COVID's blind. It's not, It doesn't see how good of a player you are. You know, it doesn't see if you're a bench player, it affects anybody. And, you know, you see like the Celtics got depleted. The Mavericks uh, didn't touch any of their franchise players, but I mean, it, it depleted their, you know, their core, you know, rotation players and, you know, they're, they're still sticking in tough, but it could, you know, you have a full, you'll have a full roster one day and then you're depleted getting games, you know, postponed and then having to play four or five games without, you know, f- half of your rotation. It's tough, man. It's a tough, it's a tough way to live. It's, it's sort of like, you know, playing like CBA or something back in the day. Like you don't know what's on your roster. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. We also saw Giannis and Charles Barkley. I mean, Charles made some actually, actually some warranted comments around kind of, now this is a, a two, you know, an MVP, a great player, a superstar player, but Chuck's point, he kind of criticized Giannis a little bit to the extent of they've lost the same way the last two seasons in the playoffs. Teams have formed a wall around Giannis, um, especially when they put Giannis in the middle of the floor and just let him go one-on-one and, and made other guys beat him. So it's not so much a knock on Giannis at times. It can be some other guys need to step up. But I guess the question for me to you would be, how, how, can, we, how can they get Giannis kind of better involved. We, we all know the free throw issues. We know the three-point shooting issues, but I just don't think the one-on-one ISO from the mid-key in a playoff series is going to win him, win him a, a vital series in a conference finals. I think he's passing. He's actually average to above average. Like I think he's a pretty good passer and he's starting to figure out how to play make. Um, but I'd like to see maybe some more post action with cutters coming off him, um, maybe some elbow action, something a little bit different than just the the one-on-one ISO from the top of the key. What do you think about that? Yeah, Bogues, I would go out of Golden State's playbook and run a lot of split action and get him in the post. Like I said that in the first episode um, that I was on with you about, you know, his game and, and the flaws in it. Chuck, you know, hit it right on the head. And I know, I, you know, it's the post up. They He needs something to go to in the post. You know, most guys go to the post, especially wing players to get fouled. That could be an issue for him, but he needs something. I don't care about like superstars in the NBA. Three-point shooting is not all that important. I know some would probably disagree. It is important to a certain degree, but free throw shooting is a much more important thing. Because if you're a superstar, you're going to have the ball in your hands. You're going to have it, especially in crunch time. And they're going to follow the hell out of you and put you at the free throw line. But that being said, you can't deal with that because that's going to be in the offseason where he gets better at, at, at shooting the ball. He's not going to improve during the season. But he needs a go-to move that puts your head down, straight line drive, and spin, you know, drive your left and spin back to your right is good for 72 games in the regular season. 
But in the playoffs, everything's out the window. And that's not going to work in the playoffs. And they talk all this time for the last year, you know, they're, t- they're sweating out his contract. What can we do to make Giannis better as far as, you know, putting better players around him? I think it's, you know, yeah, your, your players around you are okay. But you have to look at Giannis and say, look, like he needs a go-to move and he can't shoot, for, especially from the free throw line. But I think he needs something from the, you know, you know, Shaq was saying it's all coaching. It's all where you put him. No, because when, when he catches the ball on the block, he'll either try to back you down, back you down and shoot a fadeaway, you know, fadeaway or shoot over somebody or put his head down and try to barrel into the basket. He's got no sort of like slow down post up, you know, look, nobody knows Kobe's post game better than I do. And his post game was back down, jump shot, back down, fadeaway back down, step through like that MJ going to the baseline. It's very, But he doesn't even have that. And he needs to develop that if he wants to take that team to the next level. I don't care who they bring in as a supporting cast. He needs to develop his game and he needs to address that shooting. If the Olympics get canceled this summer, like take a week off and break down that shot because that head going back is a huge problem. And he can't make shots consistently. It's always going to be a problem until he addresses it. Yeah, I look, I guess... Offensively, we we got to obviously get into the nitty gritty and 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 kind of decipher the flaws and for them to try. This is all for them trying to build to win a championship. You, you can't forget defensively is phenomenal. I mean, he does a lot of things defensively that affect the game. But the problem is, I think he's the number one option offensively. So that's where where that's kind of the elephant in the room for them. But I'm still on the Giannis playing stretches at five bandwagon. I think it, it has to happen and not just for a couple of minutes. I think it's going to be, that's going to be a small ball lineup. And I, I know, you know, Lopez is a phenomenal three-point shooter. He's streaky, but he, he spaces the floor and protects the rim for him. But at times, they're, they're going to have to go with a 15, 20-minute stretch at him at the five because, you know, the spacing, as we saw in the playoffs, it just, when he goes one on one-on-one from middle of the key, I mean, it's, You'd rather have four shooters out there than a big that's kind of a so-so shooter. But um, we'll both be watching with interest. Uh, Chuck also made a good point about, you know, he's fantastic in the regular season because, I mean, there's not that many elite defensive teams. There's not, not that much time to break down how to defend a team exactly. And 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 he just runs them up because he's so talented and just unstoppable from the middle of the floor in regular season games. But then in that, in that playoff grind series, it just, like you said, there just needs to be more to his game to get them to the – to the championship and get them to conference finals where they, where they actually have a chance of winning. Because that game's going to slow down, Bogues. You know in the playoffs oh, yeah. it just slows Holding, down. grabbing, slows down, extra pressure. I mean, it's amazing the contrast of – I feel like each playoff series you get to, it gets tighter and, and, and more physical and the refs continue to swallow their whistle like round by round. Yeah. Like you go from the first round, they try to come out and there's always those comments around, we're going to ref it the same way we did in the regular season and just because <laughs> of the playoffs, it's not going to change. And by the time you get to the conference finals, it's like almost late 90s, early 2000s NBA where you can like punch someone in the face almost <laughs> you know, yeah. and get away with one oh, out yeah. of five, you know? So I agree with you totally there. And you have teams that could make changes. Like you bust their ass their first game, they're going to make changes. That you know, I thought Phil Jackson was really good at that when I was working for Kobe, like in a playoff series where he made adjustments and changes. If he got his ass busted, you know, in one game, the next game, you know, he he made those changes. Usually they were pretty good. You know, it's it just. The playoffs is just a different animal and it's a different beast. And, you know, teams could wall up. They could, they can make changes throughout a series. You know, it's not like you're going to be in, in, in and out, you know, in one game and then you don't see the team for 20 games. You're, you're in for a whole series and they can make those changes. And I just think it's going to be tough for them. I mean, they got a good team. 
Drew, you know, they got they got Holiday, they got Middleton, they got him. They'll get they, their benches isn't as good as it was. It's not as deep, but they do have three really good players and some good supporting cast. But I'm telling you, before I think it's going to be, I don't think he's going to win a championship this year. And I think it's something he's going to have to address in the offseason if he wants to take that team to a championship level. Yep, we'll watch that space. It will be interesting as it gets closer. We're going to move on to the Knicks. So shout out to my good friend at Jason on Twitter, Jason Calacanis. He's a huge Knicks fan. And I'm sure he'll love us giving them a bit of a good rap. I think they've been fantastic. I think Thibs has turned around everything they do. They they're already playing that kind of grind. They're physical. They they make you earn everything offensively. You're not you're not getting them with any quick hitters offensively. Everything's scouted. Thibs is out there, you know, yelling and moaning every possession, doing the right thing and calling out all their plays. And I think it's been good to to watch. I mean, they're, they're, I thought their you know their roster's not not good. I mean, Julius Randle's a talented player, but I, I didn't think they'd be at 500 at this point of the season. They've had some. This isn't. I mean, early in the season, they probably had some easier wins against some some teams that were about their ballpark. But they've beaten some good teams the last couple of weeks, and I've kind of enjoyed the transformation of the Knicks. Yeah, I watched um I watched their game against Golden State. I think it was last night. Um it was an older game, you know, a couple of days old. But I'll tell you what, you're right. Like they are a fun team to watch. Like Julius Randle playing that like Bam out of bio point five I thought was going to be a disaster. It's actually it's actually worked out pretty well. Like, you know, he's putting up numbers. He's he's you know, sort of playmaking for other people. He's hard to stop. He's he's got a lot of skill to his game. Mitchell Robinson's been good as far as his defense. You know what what he brings to the table. That not really skilled offensively, but he's a rolling threat. And then you know, obviously the other guys they have on their team. But I'll tell you what, that young kid they got. I mean, RJ is is, is such a a talent. I. I yeah, you know, I thought he was just okay last year, but he's a fluent athlete. He puts the ball on the floor. He can't shoot it yet, even though he made about three threes against Golden State when I saw him. But I mean, they've got a good roster of really good role players. And you put him with Randall and RJ Barrett, and you got Tibbs, who's like a Bill Belichick type. You know, not much personality, but he's going to get him organized. He's going to have him playing hard, and he's going to teach those guys, which is much needed with those younger players, uh, how to be a pro. And you know, he's got Darren Ehrman on his staff that is a, a you know really good defensive coach. I mean, he's got some good things. So look, they're not they're not the '86 Celtics. I'm not I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is they're definitely going in the right direction with how hard they play, how organized they are, and their defensive intensity for sure. Yeah, and quickly. He might have one of the most amazing floater games I've seen. Oof. Man, he's, he's shooting those things from the free throw line at times, those floaters. And they're, I mean, they're all money. Like, it looks like that's that's part of his game. It, it, it's been kind of strange watching, but, you know, he gets into the, the middle of that pain and he just goes bang, 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 bang. And, and he had one game, it might have been the Warrior game or the game before, where he hit four or five straight floaters, which they were essentially given up because they're 10 foot floaters, but that's been fun to watch. Yeah, he he is. And, you know, they've got all those young guards that they had to deal with. I mean, Alfred Payton's playing better as Kevin Knox is sort of up and down when I see him play. Reggie Bullock's making shots. Nerlens Noel, which I had, which we had in Dallas, you know, he's really good off the bench as a rim protector, rim roller, you know, a rim runner and, and a roller on pick and rolls. He's, you know, they're good. They're interesting. Look, they're, I, they're just much improved is what I'm saying. I don't think they're going to be a great team, but he's definitely got them in the right direction. Yeah, no, it's been it's been um, awesome to watch. And I think Julius Randle, you know, if they continue on and make the playoffs, I mean, there's a high chance that he could be an all-star. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's going to be close, but I, I do agree. I mean, he's putting up good numbers and I think he's definitely in there. I have like 18 or 19 guys that I have, 
you know, sort of like all-star level players, he's definitely in there. So it'll be interesting if he makes the cut because he's, you know, he's a very interesting player. He's putting up really good numbers. I just think the way he's being used, it's sort of like Don Nelson, how he used to use the big guys back in the day, like Chris Weber and stuff, handling the ball and and just sort of playmaking and being able to get to the basket. It's it, he's he's been a fun player to watch. It's good because he, you know he's been on some bad teams. He's had that he broken leg that one year, so you didn't know where his career was going to go. And it's it's good that he's got a, a situation where Tibbs could take him under his wing, teach him how to be a player. And you know I I, I I'm definitely very very surprised at how well they're playing so far. All right, have you been following the um, I guess the old stars criticizing the new stars? I mean, what are your thoughts around that? Because it's it's been interesting. I think KD got asked about it. Um, there's been a, a few players who have been asked about different things. There was an interview where Shaq had with Donovan Mitchell, basically somewhat saying that he's not there yet as a player and trying to see what kind of reaction he would garner from that and hopefully he'd get the right one about working hard and doing all those things. But um, I mean, look, at times, I think my personal opinion, I think the old stars always criticize the new stars and it's just a generational thing. Um, I think there is a touch of jealousy sometimes just because the amount of money being thrown around today, you know, let's not forget superstars back in 70s, 80s, 90s were making good money, but they weren't making the money of today. So I think there's a bit of resentment there, but at the same time, I don't mind guys critiquing games of others, but I agree somewhat with KD that at times the tone does seem a little resentful. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that to a certain extent for sure. Um, I remember when Larry Bird signed a deal and Clyde Drexler, right around the same year, they signed deals for about $8 million a year. And I was like, it's sort of like someone getting $45 million these days. And I was like, what the fuck? And now players, you're right, there's money being thrown around a lot. Um, obviously, that's that's the benefit from the league being so popular. But I do believe that there is a resentment and jealousy of of older some older players, some players that played in the past with young players today. Because look, they they sort of created the path that these guys have today to get these big contracts, and they probably feel a little bit of resentment that the money they're making probably sort of the the players are different today too. Like they're they you know they've got different interests. It's not just all basketball; it's other things. And I think that you know they get critiqued pretty easily by the older players and the players that played before them, and it could be a little resentful at times. But I do like I really like Charles Barkley. Like I think what what Barkley says makes a lot of sense most times, and I think he you know I think he's very smart. I think he you know he he tries to help and critique. Sometimes he tries to bust people's balls for sure. But I, I think there are players that are um, it's good to critique especially that, look, they did that before and they did it for a long time and most of these guys were successful. And I think it's good to hear those guys talk. But yeah, I think there is a, a certain jealousy of, you know, the money they made versus you know, what they made, you know, before them. Yeah, especially if you're, I guess, back in the day, you were the guy, you were the number one guy in the league or number two guy in the league and you were making, you know, let's say $8 million a year. 10 million a year and now you're looking at guys like, you know, let's say Rudy Gobert who Shaq kind of went after a little bit. Where he's making two hundred million over five six years, and he's not a you know he's not the number one option on his own team. So there's some there's some people that probably thinking, well, when I did it, I was number one, and I wasn't getting that money. So there is a bit of a bit of that, and that's normal. And I guess it kind of leads into the debate, and this is why I don't like getting into the debates of like you know Kobe versus Jordan or LeBron versus Jordan or Bird versus this guy or whatever it is, right? Because like. As leagues and whatever, I don't care what sport it is. I don't care if it's basketball, football, or you know, 
throwing darts at a dartboard, whatever it is, as as society progresses, they're going to be better. It is what it is. Like it's, I, I just don't understand a lot of the old school mentality of like, you know, back in my day that wouldn't have flown or we were better. It's like number one, you can never prove it. But number two, it's like the game progresses, technology progresses, analytics is a big part of the game now. The equipment's better. The shoes are better. I mean, dudes in the 60s and 70s were playing in, you know, Chuck Taylor's essentially, um, you know, and getting injured and, and now the game's much faster. You got to be much more explosive. You have to back up night to night. And it's a pointless debate in my opinion, because I'm going to be that guy now, you know, I'm phasing out of the league and retiring. I'm not going to shit on guys in 10 years because they, they'll be better than, than I was and my generation was. I think that's just, that's common sense to me. I agree with you. I I never get in debates of players in different eras. It's impossible. You'll never be able to have those matchups and be able to decide it. I think the technology, the diet, the training, the coaching, the athletes are much better. And also, like I think the players back in the day did the best of what they had and how they had to play the game. Everyone said like, well, Jordan, you know, Jordan couldn't play that well in these game, you know, t- in today's game because he doesn't shoot the three. Well. If Jordan felt as though the three-point shot was a really important part of the game, which it was not back then, I think he would have spent much more time in the offseason perfecting it and having that. Bob Cousy, you know, and guys like that, like it's it, he's like jokes in locker rooms that he's a Hall of Famer based on how he played. Well, first of all, that's the competition those guys played against. That's, you know, there was no player development. Those guys had second jobs. It's just a different mindset. And the games, like you said, the games progressed. It's gotten better. And it's almost impossible to sort of, to sort of compare what those guys did before. And, you know, that's why, like, when they, they have these debates, well, who's better, this guy or that guy? I don't really care. They're both really good, you know, and they were both great players and they're both great to watch. But everyone's going to have their, their opinion on how the game, they, everybody sees the game differently and, you know, they'll throw stats at you and they'll throw athletic attributes. It's just impossible sometimes to make those debates. But, you know, that's what, you know, that's what fuels the world these days and just sort of all these debates and all these like, you know, talk radio and all that. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion that if you take any, anyone from an era of today and put them you know, back 40 years, they'd, they'd, they'd probably dominate. You know, I think just, just the way the game progresses, it is what it is. You know, it's, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but it's a, it's a mindless banging your head against the wall debate, in my opinion. But um, one last thing that I want to touch on, I just saw it today. I mean, the challenge rule was brought in, for those that aren't familiar in the NBA, you now get one challenge a game where the coach can has to call a timeout, I believe, and then they can challenge whether it was a foul, whether it was out of bounds. And it's been interesting for me, I think, the one thing I would tweak with that rule is I think is it is it football maybe I think if you're right you should keep your challenge shouldn't you like if you've challenged something and the referee is blatantly wrong shouldn't you keep your challenge I think so I'm not a hundred percent sure on the on the ruling on you that don't. The you, football. I looked it up I looked it up you get one challenge you have to call a timeout and regardless of the result of the challenge um, you lose it what do you, what's your feeling as a player Bogues you know with the challenge rule did you like it did you not like it what 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 what's your deal with that? I only played one year with it, and I I don't mind it. Um, I, I think if I was a coach, strategically, I would tell all of our players and coaches we're not using it till the fourth period. That would be my strategy as a coach because it can win you a game if it's a um, 
a, a crucial possession with a couple of minutes before a couple of minutes left because they review most late. But I'd keep it in my back pocket. Um, I always laugh when the superstars want a challenge within the you know the first quarter, <laughs> and, and it's the superstar. Yeah, yeah, I see that. So the coach is like, yeah. "Oh, it's my superstar. I'll challenge it, keep him happy." But then they might need that challenge down the line. But um, yeah, I, I would use him the fourth. But like I said, I, I think it's something that if you're right if it's blatant like the one that i saw was it was a it was this game in miami versus brooklyn which is live as, as as we're recording kevin durant blocked a shot from behind and it was a it was a clear as day block all ball the referee caught a foul because he was in a bad position they challenged it and then they they went to a jump ball and you know they don't get that back now and that was in the first half so it's like if steve nash now needs a vital challenge late you know, I think, like I said, if, if you're right, you should keep that challenge. There's the argument of it slowing up the game. Well, the game's slow anyway, let's be honest. Like there's mm-hmm. a shitload of free throws, there's TV timeouts. So the games are two, two and a half, three hours now anyway, whether you like it or not. So I don't, I don't think it'd be a bad idea to keep challenges if you're right. They have it in the NBL or no? No, they don't. The, the, the referees in the NBL actually have an earpiece. They can go to the monitors if they see something. But for a quick out of bounds that they might have blown, they, they usually have five or 10 seconds. Someone might be in the ear saying, oh, you've missed that one, reverse it, and they'll reverse it real quick. So they, they, do, they do a pretty good job of that, to be honest, um, that they've got a new piece in there. But you know, it's still hard with the game moving as quickly as it does. They can only stall for so long. And if it's a, if it's a tough decision from the, from the desk, you know, then you just got to play on and, and live with the bad call. Yeah, the the challenge is is you know its own animal these days. Like you you hear everybody talking about it, you know when you hear the people doing the games, you know the play by play. You even have rookies. I remember uh, seeing one rookie like get hit or some call that he wanted reviewed. One of his players is like, "Yeah, fuck off. We're not using your review on you. Come yeah, on, you'll be in the exactly. D league in a week anyway." Yeah, it's like a yeah. role player. It's like, man, sit down. Quiet. The only thing we should challenge is having you on our fucking roster, right, pal? So <laughs> shut the fuck up about your about your fucking challenge. The best one is also when they when they're adamant that they were right and get the coach to challenge it, and they're jumping up and down and they're wrong, <laughs> just like oh us. god, yeah, that's good. Like, why are you lying? We're gonna like, and you know, sometimes they know, like, oh, it wasn't off me. I didn't touch. I didn't touch it last. And you review it, and yeah. it's like, buddy, you did touch it last. We just we just wasted a challenge, and then you probably look at those coaches about trusting that guy ever again for a challenge for the rest of the season. And when's the last time you heard of an NBA player telling you the truth if the ball was off of him? Or like, of course they're going to say it was off of the other guy. Like, you got to have, you know, as a coach, you got to have a little bit of dis- – you got to sort of do it case-by-case case basis of who to trust and who not exactly. to Exactly. You've got your trustworthy list and your uh, – that guy's 50-50 and then you've got a hell no list as well of like, <laughs> just get back on D, buddy. Yeah. Getting any challenge for you, but just, you know, take the out of balance and we'll just, we'll just get him back, but. On a kind of a, a tougher note, it's the one-year anniversary of of Kobe Bryant's uh, passing. Obviously, one of the greats of the game, but I guess you were one of the integral parts of of his career for for a short amount of time, three four years. But um, I think we, you know, what were your fondest? Give us something Kobe-wise that people would love to love to hear. All right, so it's the lockout. It's 2011, and where you know I've, I've worked for him for, for a while uh he wanted me to come in mike brown just got hired as their coach so he brought me and tim grover uh, over with him to to work him out and to work with him he wanted to go over mike brown's playbook and some of the things that um mike's probably going to put in for them so we spent about 11 days with him this is like right before the chris paul trade that got you know nixed by the league but you know i, I never really spent a lot of time with him I and mean, we we spent all of our time was based on, you know, getting them ready for games, going over film, um, talking to them about the games. 
and I never really spent much time. And, and, and because I told him the first time we spoke, I, you know, when he hired me, I was like, look, we're not going to be friends. You know, we're, I'm not going to be one of those guys who wants to take pictures with you like those jerk offs. I'm going to do my job for you. I'm not going to ask you for anything. It's just going to be a business relationship like that. Well, somehow like Grover was gone. I think Grover took his, uh, like went somewhere. It was just me. We worked out. I told you about that uh, JCC story about us being on TMZ. Yep. So he brought me back to his house. Uh, he, he had a, he had a house in this Pelican Hill, um, Newport Beach sort of resort. He had a, an, another house. So we, we spent some time. We, we start talking about the game, talk, start talking about the history of the game. And the guy's just so well-versed in the game and players and coaches and things. Well, he starts, he says, Mike, I want to show you something. So he, I said, all right. He starts busting out the piano for like 15, 20 minutes. And he says, I taught myself how to play. I can get the fuck out of here. He goes, nah. I did. I got, I never knew anything like that about him, and I don't think I've ever heard of it. And then he's got this dog hanging around. He's got this German Shepherd that's afraid of his own shadow. And I said, KB, what's what's going on with this dog, man? He goes, Yeah, it's funny that you ask. He goes, I got it like from the like the either the FBI or the D, uh, DEA, and it's an attack dog that. On dem- on commands that I speak to the dog in Croatian, I could speak to it, and it'll it has like three commands. It'll jump on you, growl, jump on you, and and put you know step on your chest. The second command has him puts his teeth like mouth around your neck, and the third it squeezes down. And he talks to this dog in Croatian. He swears on the court in Spanish that it, like he told me all these things and sort of got to know him a little bit more you know spending all that time with him but you know it's it was amazing some of the things that he can do just basically a lot of it was self-taught a lot of it was like you know he had a life away from basketball and it was pretty cool to sort of see that because in my four years we never really talked anything personal except that one week and it was cool to sort of get to know him and spend some time with him and talk to him about growing up and talk to him about you know different challenges about like living in Italy and what he thought about the league and players and and things like that, but also things like learning different languages and you know struggles. You know when he was growing up in Italy with really no friends and trying to you know just sort of making his way around the league and and things like that. Just he's a he's a cool guy, man. You know, like I said, I, I probably didn't take advantage of it as much as I should have and talk to him more about that stuff, but. Knowing that he spoke those languages, had that dog that I thought was sort of like an ASPCA like abused dog, but that that really was like sort of playing, you know, playing its part until it was called in Croatian. And then just the work ethic the guy had and just sort of like the competitiveness was pretty cool to see. But um getting to talk to him off the court was pretty cool a little bit. You know, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did it only in a short period just to, you know, just to keep it business. I thought our relationship was good like that. But, you know, the guy was a, a special dude, man. How many languages did he know? At the time, I think he said like four at the time. You know, Italian, obviously, Spanish, Croatian. I, I guess he talked to he talked to Luca in Slovenian when uh, Luca came to town, you know, um, right before Kobe's passing. So, I don't know, man. He was a smart dude. He studied. I, I tell people the four things that made him a great player. Obviously, the skill, you know, the high, high skill, one of the most skilled players that ever played the game. The physical attributes, obviously, you know, being six foot six and athletic as he was. Again, there are, there are really skilled players out there. They're really players physically gifted. The third thing was the competitive nature that he wanted to kill you. He wanted to kill anybody 
that was going against him. Player-wise and team-wise, he wanted to bust your ass in the competitive nature of him was just intense that I've never seen before in any other athlete I was around. And the fourth was he had the mentality of a 13th man, that he was going to be an invested in his craft, the work ethic, the endless individual workouts, the, the endless like work on his body, the diet, the discipline, and being just invested in the game and professional. Never spoke badly about coaches, never was like, I need to get out of here, this and that, you know, fuck Phil, never heard any of that, even when they were going through tough times. So when you put those four things together, folks, and you've been around a million players, and players might have one of those things, they might have two of those things, but have a player that had four of those things. Like we would work out and... You know how these workouts are today. They're crazy, right? Like all this bullshit that the players work 95% of the time on the things they're going to be doing 1% of the time. Well, Kobe would spend like five minutes straight on a one dribble pull up on one spot, like five minutes. And, and when you say five minutes, you don't think it's a long time. Imagine taking as many shots as you can for five straight minutes. And I would ask him, I said, what are you doing? He goes, it doesn't feel right, Mike. It has to feel not good but great and perfect. And it doesn't feel perfect right now. And working on those simplistic things. And I remember Clay Thompson, actually, we were working out 2011 that same week. We were working out in some sports club in Irvine. And Clay Thompson was just getting in the league. I think he just got drafted that offseason. Yep. And he was working out with this guy and, and he sort of stopping and watching the workout. But he was just so simple. And you know, I use it in my company all the time, folks. Dominate simple. And that guy was the president of that club of Dominating Simple. His workouts were just simplistic. They were hours and hours and hours of doing just simplistic things. You want to work on your left hand? He'd spend an hour and a half shooting with his left, dribbling with his left. He wouldn't touch the ball except to grip the ball with his right hand. I mean, he was that sort of dedicated. When he thought he had to get better at something in the offseason, he would just get better at it. And he would work tirelessly on that one thing. And I think that when, you know, when I took that job, when, when I took the job in Dallas, you know, you know how you have trainers that would work with an NBA all-star and they would try to teach every player the same moves and, and mentality. It's a waste of fucking time. And when you're trying to teach player, like average to below average players, how great players play. The one thing that I could take with Kobe was his investment in his craft with other players. Like I said, look, I'm never going to teach you what Kobe did because it would be stupid for your game. That's not your game. But what I will teach you is how he got to work out an hour early, how he was never late, how he worked on the simple things that he was going to do in games, how he wasn't gimmicky, how he took care of his body, how he was just meticulous at those things, and how he was professional, how he would like go to an obscure person and just like start up a conversation or thank them and look people in the eye when he talks. You could teach every player in the world how to play like Kobe Bryant on that end of things, or how to be a professional. You can't teach him his fadeaways and his tough shots and you know his athletic ability and all that. You can't teach that. But what you can teach is the investment in being a pro. And that guy was the best I've ever seen at it. And he's fantastic. And I mean, the world lost a, a great human being a year ago. And, you know, but those things I take away, Bogues, and the guy was just—he was on another planet with some of the things that he would do. But he was—he was an interesting cat for sure. Yeah, and you're one of the few lucky ones that got that close to him because, from what I understand, you know, he doesn't let a lot of people in his in his circle. Obviously, a a tough kind of relationship with his his parents. That yeah, you know, and he was very 
you know, we kind of knew it as players, but he was very kind of, he kept his circle really, really tight. Yeah. And you get most of like players that don't really like, ha- would have somebody working for him like me. Right. And they, they, you know, and then after me, there was a bunch of people who did the same thing with video and stuff with players. And they just look at it and they'll just like shake their head. It's sort of like those players that look at those clips that coaches show them before games and you, and you could just see them like their eyes rolling back in their head. Like, look, I've watched fucking tape for, you know, this morning before the game. We're going to watch tape again. And now you're showing me these three minutes like it's going to re- be the end of the world. But I remember my first week with them, folks, we, they were playing Philly. And I, you know, I, I'm, you, you've been around me long enough to know I'm a paranoid fuck. Like, I, I just think that everyone's making fun of me or they're not, you know, whatever. It, it is what it is. So I'm like, I wonder if he's really looking at this shit. So our, our, how we would set it up would be, I would, I would send him film. I would send him everything, all his scouting reports for the, the game that night. I would send it to him that morning on his way to, on his way to, um, to shoot around. You know, he would leave early and, and, and go to shoot around and I would I would give it to him then and then we'd start our talks after shoot around. So like usually I would send it to him, I forgot, like maybe like eight thirty, nine o'clock my time, which was like seven o'clock his time. And then I said, you know what? I'm gonna hold off. It was Andre Igadala. I'd never forget this. Andre Igadala was the matchup. And it was like, I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna hold off. So I, I didn't check my phone purposely for like 15 minutes. I get like eleven text messages from him. Mike, you all right? Where's the report? You good? Like, everything good? Like, 11 fucking messages. And I was like, holy shit. Like, okay, this guy is invested. And you weren't, like, imagine NBA players like that today doing something like that. They wouldn't. They'd be like, ah, fuck it. I I don't give a fuck. Like, most players. Like, this guy, like I said, had the mentality of, like, a walk-on player. And like where he wanted to absorb knowledge and things like that. And look, we would go back and forth all the time. It's not like everything that I gave him, like he would use or he would he would agree with. We'd agree to disagree sometimes and it was cool. But like there was another time like in the 09 finals. And he was like, well, how would you defend, you know, Ray for Alston was killing it early, you know, in the series. And he was like, how would you defend him? And I wasn't really an X and O guy. So I threw out some bullshit. Like just, this is what I would do. And this is the only time I ever did that with him. And he goes, well, show me video of that actually happened because I think that's bullshit. I don't think that ex- that type of coverage exists. And I was like, you know what? Like he called me on my bullshit. <laughs> this fucking guy is, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that, I respect that. I respect the shit out of that. It was invested. I would much rather a guy, yeah, I'd much rather a guy that gets it and like calls you out when you're bullshitting him. That's why like, he liked me because I told the truth. I was a little fucked up. He liked my sense of humor. And um, it was a good pair. It was it was good. It was a cool deal. And, you know, I got a championship ring out of it. And just, I don't give a fuck about the championship ring, to be honest with you. Being able to trade back and forth with one of the best players ever. And all we talked about is basketball. That's all we talked. We didn't talk about movies. We didn't talk about anything. Except one time where he had, I won't name the player, where he thought a player wasn't motivated enough. He wasn't going, you know, he wasn't like, he loved this player, but he thought he was, he was a little soft. He took him, the, he took him not once, but twice to see Black Swan. You ever see the movie Black Swan? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it, it was like this like really fucked up movie about, I, I forgot who was in it, but it was this movie about like this really like twisted killer or something. Like he said, I, I, I didn't see it once with him. I saw it twice. I said, KB, what are you doing, man? Because he thought everybody should be like him with his killer instinct. And I say, KB, like, 
your killer instinct is what you were born with. But like, he goes, ah, nah, He's like, hey, but you're fucked up. And he was easy to laugh and, you know, like, but it was cool, man. Being able to like talk basketball with him and, and ask him about things and ask him questions like that to get better from me. Like he offered to pay me like two or three times. And I, and I would always say no, just because I was like, ah, I'm not the fucking brightest bulb in the tree. Let's be honest. But the second thing is I, I just wanted to learn from the fucking guy. You know, and, and I think as a coach, you could learn way more from a player than you can from anybody else, especially one that, that was that sort of dedicated, you know, to the craft. I don't know if like Steph was like that for you, you know, with you, like who, who was a player that you, like you played with Bogues that was that dedicated, you know, it doesn't have to be that dedicated, but like really took it that serious about their craft. Anybody that comes to mind? I mean, yeah, Steph's definitely up there. Steph's one of the elite as far as preparing for games and he's one of the unique ones where he you know he'll he'll check his uh his his mentions at halftime when he has a bad half it's kind of the craziest shit i ever, ever saw like you know when i first came in the league phones were kind of frowned upon in the locker room for the most part now it's a fucking shit show you can basically be texting at quarter time if you want but yeah steph would he'd go on social media if he had a bad half he would go on yeah. social media and then come out and drop 30 <laughs> like yeah, Steph was always a prick like that, like in a good way. Like, so the first time I met Kobe really is um, out in LA. Nike ran this Kobe Bryant Skill Academy where they brought in like 20 of the best shooting guard high school players in the country. And they also brought in like 15 or 20 college players to work out. And Steph was one of the guys. And this is before he hit it. This is like, like real early in his college career. And he always had a chip on his shoulder because everyone thought he was too small, too slow. He could always really shoot, but like he was always had that chip, man. And you could tell, like, I never thought he was going to be that good. I thought he was going to be like a good rotation player, maybe a starter. His shooting was excellent, but like the ball handling, I didn't see the change of speeds, the control in the game. But like he always had that chip. Did did you see that when you played like that competitive deal with him? Yeah, no doubt. But he it was almost quiet assassin. You know, um, he'd show emotion from time to time, but he'd do it kind of gracefully and silently, and then he'd show a bit of emotion and then get back to it again. But um, I guess the thing watching him play as a teammate and being on the court with him was just the enjoyment of him doing it was awesome to watch. You know, and he'd been through a lot early in his career, a horseshit Warriors team and organization at that point. Not a lot of kind of consistency with rosters they were all over the place uh, Monte Ellis was the number one guy when he was there who was a very talented individual player but from what I heard back then there was you know Monte was somewhat the guy that if if they you know if Monte scored 40 and they lost he'd be happy and if Monte scored 20 and they won he wouldn't be happy and I think that irked at Steph a little bit because Steph's not like that and once they moved Monte and gave Steph to the keys of the team it was I wouldn't say it was a different person, but you could definitely notice that he was like, "I've got my time. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fuck this up. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put the time and effort in that I need to." And you know, and he's he's one of those guys that's just elite at doing those f fine motor skills. <laughs> like, if that makes sense, like it could be, yeah, you know, never thrown a dart before, and he could walk up and hit a bullseye. Like I've seen him do <laughs> so much random shit like that, where he's just got it. He's just got that in him. Where it's obviously he works. You know, I don't want people th to think he's naturally talented to get to the skill level he has. He's obviously put in a lot of time and effort, but 
he's also just got it. He's just got it. Like he can just, his brain can calculate what he needs to do and he'll figure it out after three or four tries. And I think he's got a bit of Kobe in him that if he doesn't figure it out immediately, he's going to spend some time on it so he can get to a point where, where he's beating you. So, and that, that goes to most, most elites and, and professional athletes to an extent. But I think the Kobe's and those kind of guys take it to a whole nother level. You know, um, I think all professional athletes, like I said, have, have that to a point, but Kobe goes to, they go to the extremes of well, I'll die for it, you know. And I think, yeah, to continue that on once you're professional is is very hard to do with all the distractions and perils that come with it. And yeah, it's just been it's it's good to talk about one of the legends of the game. I mean, I I didn't have a whole lot of experiences with him. Obviously, he was out west for most of my career when I was out east, and then he was injury injury riddled towards the end of his career. But um, I still remember like the game you spoke about his left hand. He sh- he played that one game left handed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like man yeah. like dude i don't know what he had i'd, I'd be lying if I, I i think he had 20 or 30 still but you know shooting left-handed jump it was just like what is going on i think he busted his thumb or something happened but yeah just crazy i'll tell you what him luca and lebron are three players that like a magical with and especially luca and steph of like could take any type of shot from inside a half court and even at half court, and that motherfucker's got a chance to go in, man. They like they're like magicians with the ball, and it's unbelievable their ability to finish. Now Steph is obviously at another level than Luca because of the age, you know, and the experience. But like those two guys, like LeBron's there too. Don't get me wrong, but like those two guys are just magical. With like they could be falling out of bounds from the fifth row. And that motherfucker's got a really good chance to go in. It, I just can't explain it. I was around Luca, uh, not really around Steph, but just watching Steph, like watching work out, watch those shots from the tunnel. Like, I'm not a big trick shot guy, but it is pretty impressive when those guys are on the court, though, and they could just make the crazy. And, and if you get fouled and that bullshit that guys usually throw up, and like more chances than not, those things are going in. It's just. I don't know, man. It, they, he just has a gift. You know, Steph has a gift with that finishing and, you know, making shots, man. He, boy, boy, oh boy, he's he's enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Well, look, I, I hated playing against Kobe to be honest with you, because he he got us a couple of times on the buzzer. I think when I was with Milwaukee, I was I was under the basket boxing out for one of them <laughs> as soon as it left his hands. <laughs> but um, it was a pleasure looking back playing playing with him. So may you rest in peace, and and we'll touch on more of that later. We'll move on now. So the Q and A, we've got some some good questions again. Appreciate everyone sending them in. We had a boatload of them coming again, so thanks. This one comes from Stephen in Auckland of New Zealand. His question is regarding the art of the block shot, um, and more specifically, what the hell has happened to it? Other than one or two outliers outliers per season, Whiteside, Turner, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it seems like there's nowhere near the caliber of shot blockers that was there was back in the day, like a Marcus Camby, Alonzo Mourning, Theo Ratliff. Is this because of changing defensive systems, a de- decreasing post play, move to small ball, or something else? Stephen in Auckland, thanks. I think there's a number of factors. If, if you ask me, I think obviously having fives that shoot threes now is a big factor to that because. If I'm out on the floor and I'm guarding Brooke Lopez, I'm not patrolling the paint and protecting the basket as much as I should. And that goes into the strategy of having five guys that can shoot the ball so you get the the paint to be a bit more open. 
Um, so that that's definitely a huge factor. Thirty minutes of the game are played with a stretch five. Now, I mean, you might get eighteen minutes, twenty to twenty-two minutes of of a, a non-shooting big these days on on most teams, and some don't even do that. But um, that's a big play. I think guys are much smarter now. You look at guys like Kyrie, Steph. When they get in the paint, they've got a lot of shit. They got up and unders. They got floaters. They got flip shots. They got quirky finger rolls that hit the top of the backboard. So. It's harder and harder to, to, to get those. I guess for me, the, the hardest thing for me, because I was a shot blocker and I'd love to protect the basket, was when I, when I was guarding a, a shooting five because I didn't know when to go and naturally help my teammates and protect the basket because I was so wary of leaving leaving my guy and then him getting a feet set wide open three. So number of th- factors, I think, yeah, you look at Alonzo Mourning and, and Dikembe. I mean, Dikembe, if you look at tape from back then, he, he wasn't leaving the paint a whole possession really. I mean, the th- three-second rule was there, but – the guy he was guarding was either posting up or he was in the short corner somewhere and he was right near the basket at all times. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And I also think that just sort of bogues that there is a seismic shift of the give a fuck level for defense played in the NBA for long periods of time. Like weak side defenses, like you see so many drives where there's nobody even close to being in the paint, you know, on the rotation trying to stop at somebody. Everything's just sort of geared towards get the ball out of the basket and inbound it and go. Um, I'm not saying that players don't want to do it. I just think that the those players sometimes were defensive specialists too, like Dikembe Mutombo and, you know, Morning was like that, even though he was very good offensively as well. But, like, you don't really get a lot of those guys anymore. Like you said, the game's more small ball. It's more stretch five. You're not getting as many block shots in the perimeter than you would trying to protect the rim. But, like just the rotations and things and you know you'll see it more in the playoffs and you know in big games in, in big possessions if it's depending on win loss but i just think all, all in all the really like dedication to defense really isn't really there as much as it used to be yeah i would agree i think and, and it's changed refereeings obviously they they want less holding and grabbing they want what that means is if a perimeter guy is driving they want to you know, not incentivize you being able to kind of give a quick grab or hold to catch up. They want that high-flying dunk or that, you know, assist lob. You know, they want the highlights. So the NBA's officiated much differently as well, which is something I didn't mention where you guys are getting to the free throw line much easier now. There is a point to, you know, bigs that are scorers, you know, Joel Embiid or those guys probably not going for every block shot because they want to stay on the floor and not get in foul trouble too. And there is there is an art of of that, which, which isn't really part of your question, but where – where guys that chase block shots hurt your team is they go for every single one. So for me, it wasn't, you know, I led the league in blocks one year, but it, I didn't. I wasn't really chasing blocks. Just fell into a lot of them making the right reads. But if I was hunting blocks, I would have probably had maybe one or two more a game. I went, would have gone from two point whatever to three point whatever. But I would have whiffed on probably five or six of them a game. And, and then my guy would have either got a wide open offensive rebound or, you know, I would have jumped too early and, and they would have, would have passed it to my man. So there's an art in doing it. You can't go after every block shot neither. I think that there's there was a lot of kind of guys on the lower IQ side of playing basketball that would be fantastic shot blockers that would, you know, punch the ball into the 10th row that we'd have on our scout. Like the, he's going to go after everything. And I'd tell guys like Steph when I was playing with him or Brandon Jennings in Milwaukee, if, if you get to the paint, just get it on the rim or the board. That's all you need to do. If, I don't care if you throw that thing 15 feet up, this dude's going to go try block it. And then I've got a free run at the offensive rebound. Yeah. I, I remember when I scouting reports for Kobe, like a big thing was the weak side shot blocker or the, or, you know, do they go for blocks? Do they, are they going to leave their feet on every fake? 
And I think it's important to know the the players that are, you know, sort of really disciplined. They're going to stay on their feet versus the player that's just going to go for everything. And you know how it is with attention spans these days too, Bogues, like 85 to 90% of the time, they're going to go for that fake and they're going to leave their feet. And I, you could chase it all you want, but I think you, I, I think you're right. I think they, it does hurt your team when people are chasing blocks and, you know, leaving their feet all the time to try to get, a, you know, another block, block and a half. Yep. Okay. Next one is from Tristan Sever and Kilsar. This one's probably more for you, Pro. Mm-hmm. Interested in your thoughts on how to learn, improve as a coach. There's a lot of online resources which are great, coaching clinics, et cetera, et cetera. However, what gives coaches that edge to get to a higher level? Well, I think you have to, first of all, you have to watch the game and you have to formulate your own opinions. I, I, I've watched count thousands of games of just writing things down you know, taking notes and saying, okay, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. And you have to sort of formulate some type of philosophy, even if you're a young, inexperienced coach, and you have to be smart enough to know what, you know, what you could use with your team and what you can't. And if you're going to watch a lot of NBA basketball, NBL basketball, and and you coach like a 13-year-old team, you got to know what works and what doesn't for you. And then you have to actually, you know, put it in motion and do it. Uh, and I think that uh, as a young coach, it's important to coach. It's important, like I tell people all the time, yeah, if you want to try to intern for an NBA team or work as a grad assistant in college, that's all great. You might learn a little bit, but actually having the experience of like coaching a, like a 14 and under team or a 16 and under team or a summer league team of like high school kids or college kids and actually putting some of your thoughts to work. And yeah, the online clinics and camps are great to to learn, but some people like fill up like 300 page notebooks of of all these notes and things, but they never actually go and do it and figure out what style fits their, you know, sort of their philosophies and their sort of wiring. And I think it's important to make just like a player, you got to make mistakes. So yeah, there's some great online learning tools that you could use. Hoopconsultants.com, I would definitely recommend. I'm not biased or anything, but like I would also like get the this library of stuff that you can get online, but also, you know, find an outlet to actually do it as well. And then cross some things off the list and figure out what your style is, what works for you and what doesn't. Like I remember I wanted to be Rick Patino when I was a young coach, or Bobby Knight. And I know that I, besides the filthy mouth, I couldn't really do what they did. I couldn't coach some of the things that they did. I took some of the things that I can do, but I, I probably X'd out 90% of what they've done. But you know, it was important to know what I couldn't do and what I could do by trying some things. And then you just sort of figure it out along the way and you keep your networks open. You keep calling people and emailing people and you, you know, trying to get more, more context to move you up. But I think it's really important to watch the game, develop a philosophy and actually coach that philosophy with any type of player that you can to figure out what you can and can't do. Yeah. I think the other, the other important thing is. Watch different leagues around the world and watch college basketball and watch because you'll pick up a lot of different things that are transferable. And I think that's very important as well. Like the European game is so much different than the NBA. It's it's much more ball movement orientated. They really grind out possessions. Fast break basketball is not huge in Europe. It's a very half court based. The NBL is a mix of both. Um, then you've got college basketball, which can be you know, really long possessions because of the longer shot clock. And then you've got the NBA. So watch as much basketball as you can. In my opinion, I think you cannot go wrong by watching. On the flip side, like in all industries, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen, and that goes with these some of these coaching clinics. There are a lot of good ones, but I'd be careful about going to every one of them because there are some that are complete 
drivers of, of just making money and no fault of, of, of theirs. They're trying to make a living the same way, but you want to make sure that you're getting kind of people that will do it for the right reasons. And I, I know as a young kid, we had a lot of clinics with with even former players and coaches that would come from America. And, you know, pro as, as a young kid, whenever you heard an American accent in basketball in Australia, you thought they were an expert just because of the American accent, right? Because America was a pinnacle of basketball. But with that comes people that don't have the qualifications or they've oversold themselves and, and probably aren't aren't the right places to go. So I think just balancing those clinics out and not going to every single one just because you think it's going to get you better. Yeah. And, you know, don't go with people that it's going to guarantee you anything. You want to go to clinics that they're actually going to engage and talk to you back. You know, the problem with some clinics you go, you know, especially before COVID, you go to these clinics with 200 people in it and you you never, you you know, like they'll, they'll give them like three minutes to answer questions after their, after their segment and you'll never get your answers, que- you know, your questions answered. And, you know, most of the clinic that you go to, the, you know, it's something that you're not really interested in. You might only be interested in one or two speakers. Like, like, Bogue said just, you know, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen that just want to take your money. Go to the ones that really care about you. We'll send the time. We'll spend the time with you. We'll answer your emails back to try to like go back and forth to formulate and to try to educate you a little bit. And then like I know after COVID when, when things start to get to normal a little bit, like I would go to practices and, you know, email coaches in college and pro or high school, go to practices, take notes. You know, like like Bogue said, watch as much basketball as you can. There's YouTube. Uh, you could get the package in the NBA for two hundred bucks. I get the I got the NBA package. I also have the Euroleague package for fourteen ninety nine a month. That's Euroleague TV. I love that because I'm I'm a huge fan of the Euroleague. Bogues NBL. You know, talk to me for a second. Where is there a streaming service for the NBL? Is it free? Is there a paid service? How do you sort of watch games when you're not in Australia? Yeah, obviously in Australia it's accessible on on ESPN and SBS, I believe. But there's they they have a streaming service through their their app, so the NBL app, and you can stream games through there. I think it's similar to Euroleague. It might even be under this. Might even be under the same pass. Is there a discount for rogues and bogues? <laughs> maybe we'll have to talk to them. <laughs> I think it might be under the same sub, maybe even as Euroleague. I know they 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 previously had a uh, inclusive subscription where you get Euroleague and NBL. I don't know if it's still doing that, but it's around it's around ten or twelve bucks, and there's six or seven games a week. So yeah, just watch just watch as many games as you can. You can't go wrong with that. And then um, yeah, try to try to actually. I would also. Not just coach teams. I'd try to actually get on the individual side of things as well because I think yeah. you'll learn both both kind of facets of coaching where you might have a kid come to you that's, hey, man, I can't go left. You know, my left hand's horrible. Everyone pushes me right. Everyone knows I'm going right. And then you break down and put together a training process to getting better with your left hand. That'll teach you a lot of good things as well, whereas the team thing is a whole different aspect of coaching. But just mix it up and do different things. Thanks for your question there. Number three, loving the podcast. Thomas Smith from Kangaroo Island, South Australia. No secret that you have a great basketball IQ. Oh, thank you. With that being said, do you think you'll ever get into coaching? If so, when, who, and if not, why? And side question, who was your favorite coach in your career? Uh, for me, I, I would like to get into coaching one day. I think the biggest issue for me with coaching isn't isn't the X's and O's side of things. It's the, the daily people management that it's become. 
Um, that's where I'd probably need some help and where I'd struggle because I'm kind of a, a no-nonsense guy. I really value being on time. I really value kind of, you know, coming in shape and all those kind of things where they can be an issue on most teams. You'd have one or two guys that have that kind of issue and that's where I struggle because I just kind of lose my shit at it when I shouldn't. Um, so I'd need some pretty good assistance. But down the track, I'll look to do something as a now NBA, no way right now, just with two young kids going back to that travel schedule. I just, you couldn't pay me enough to go over there and do it at the moment. But I think down the track, I'll look to do it. And favorite coaches for me, there were many different coaches I loved. They all had their positives and negatives. So there's not one guy that I'd I'd like, I'd say this guy was was the guy. I mean, Scott Skiles for me was one of the, the smartest coaches I've played for in the NBA. I mean, he just, he was a point guard when he played. He just knew how to run a team. He knew how to, you know, he had really good quick, quick hitter plays off the top of his head. We drew it a lot of stuff that was late game. If we, hey, if we ever need a, a game where with 0.7 seconds left, we do this 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 play from the sideline out of bounds and we always think like oh man why are we even doing this and, and he told us like one day this is going to win us a game and holes been known pro I, I i hit a game winner doing it um we, we ran the play and guy from the sideline out of bounds threw it to the weak side of the rim and i tapped it in with 0.7 won a game and that was a play that we worked on maybe 20 30 times right at the end of the training three four minutes hey let's just do this real quick run through this and, and we won a game with it so he was he was sensational he, he struggled a little bit with the people management side you know he had the rumor of, of, of grinding on guys after a couple of years and looking back that was probably just because he demanded energy and effort every game which wasn't a priority for for a lot of nba players but he was one guy i mean steve kerr obviously inherited a pot of gold but did really well with it as well so that was another guy but yeah there's, there's been a number of guys throughout my career that i've taken i've tried to take positives from from every coach I've had and, and try to obviously learn from the negatives and not not have those kind of be in, in, in my tools that when I, you know, when I become a coach one day. One coach that I really liked, uh, he's on the college level, he coaches at University of South Carolina, one of my favorite coaches I've ever been around. I've known him a long time. His name is Frank Martin. And, um, you know, again, he's not, he's not an NBA coach. He's not a famous coach. He made a one Final Four a couple of years ago, but he's a no-nonsense coach. He's, he's a high school coach and a teacher in Miami, Florida. He went to a, a low-level Division One school in Boston, Northeastern, and then he moved on to Kansas State and as an assistant, took the head job at Kansas State, and then took the uh, South Carolina head coaching job. I just like coaches that are sometimes under the radar, that doesn't take any shit, Frank has got high integrity. He runs great defensive system, good offensive system. But he, well, he's like what Bogue's talking about. He doesn't, you know, he values, he has values about being on time, team over individual. It doesn't matter if it's the best player or it's the worst player, he's going to tell you the truth. And those guys I really enjoy. If, if you can get anything out of Frank Martin, I would definitely look it up. He's, he's one of my favorite coaches of all time just to, again, because he's no-nonsense he doesn't just coach in cliches like most of these coaches do and all this bullshit. He actually, you know, he just he actually just breaks it down very direct and he gets the most out of his teams. He's he's a very good coach. All right. Thanks for that question, Thomas. Next one we got is from Dave Q. How often do teams try to pad the stats of players they plan to trade? Do they tell the team to defer to these guys during games or is it an understood thing amongst players in the playing group about what is happening? Um, I don't think it happens so much from the team. I think players are, are proud of kind of their individual talents. So everyone wants to put up good numbers and there's there's a lot of a lot of good players out there that, that stat pad and, and that it's not really for, for trade value. It's more for 
you know, my future future contract earnings. If I'm if I'm getting if I'm averaging nine rebounds a game, I get that to ten, and I average a double double. There might be a bonus in my contract. So with that stuff, definitely, there's there's definitely notorious stat patterns in the NBA. You'd know a few pro. We'd all know a few that would make sure they got their their twenty and ten, or make sure they hit their points per game. And then okay, I've hit my number. Let, let me try win the game now. And they're the guys you kind of don't want around, in my opinion. You want to try and you know you want guys to be proud about their performance and put the time and effort in to play well and do well. But the really full, full-on notorious kind of guys that are blatantly just chasing stats. You know, I've had teammates fight me for rebounds before. You know, I've got a clear rebound and a guy comes from the weak side and tries to steal it from me. And you're like, mate, you know, what, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> we're on the same team. We've got the same colors on, man. Um, so it does happen in, in that aspect. As far as trade value, I don't think I don't think that's something that any team would come out and say, hey, we need you to go get your numbers so we can boost your value up. What are your thoughts? No. It'll be silent. I think most teams, when they do that, usually when they've messed up in the draft a year before and they draft the wrong guy, but no one really knows it yet, what they tend to do in Summer League, because Summer League's so bad as far as the defensive intensity that's being played at, they'll, in the second year, the second summer, they'll run every play to, to like a big man that they know can't play like he's Akeem Olajuwon and he'll put up big numbers to try to trade him in the summer. Um, there are situations where silently teams during the season on, right, right around trade deadline, you know, when they're trying to get off of a guy, they'll try to probably play him a lot more, you know, showcase him a lot more, put him in situations where they could be successful and then try to trade him. It does happen a little bit, but it's not anything that the coach is going to say, look, we're, we're trying to move you. It, the, the second that a coach would say that to a player, the player will quit, shut down, you know, altercation. So what they'll do is they'll 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 play him more minutes. They might start him when they usually don't start. They'll probably run a few plays to him, first play out of timeout, first play out of halftime, just to showcase them a little bit, you know, to, to see if there's any, you know, any value for the player. But usually if it's going to be done, it's going to be done on a draft pick gone wrong that they could showcase the next summer in summer league to try to get off their books and try to trade. But yeah, like Bogue said, it's not something that's communicated. Yeah, I think it would just hurt the culture of your group too if it was known. Um, you don't want to be that team. I mean, teams that are blatantly tank, I mean, there's an argument for and against that. Obviously, the argument for is you get draft picks. The argument that I have against it is if you've got young pieces that are going to be there long term, you're basically making out like losing isn't the worst thing in the world. And there's no, you know, we don't need to win right now. We'll win one day. And, and then you, you're basically ingraining losing being okay. And I've been part of those teams where it probably caught me early in my career where you didn't really value it as much because you're like, oh, we're tanking anyway, you know. And it's hard to flick that switch when when you're really trying to be good then. It takes a year or two. And, and if you have some of those loser mentality guys, because on a lot of those tanking teams, then you'll get your stat patterns. You'll get a guy that says, oh, we're not going to make the playoffs anyway. Let me get my 30 and, and just build bad habits. So it's a fine line and there's no... I don't think there's a set strategy for it. Like I don't, I don't. Yeah, I'm not all. I'm not an all-in tank guy, and I'm not a. I'm not against strategically maybe moving up in the draft late in the season. I think there's you gotta you gotta watch the way you play it, right? Yeah, for sure. All right, next one. Thanks, uh, Charlie, for that. Oh, this is from Charlie, actually. Sorry, <laughs> it's an interesting one. So it's it's about athletes, an athlete's perspective on signing trading cards. So cards are having a resurgence in popularity. Delhi recently invested in a card platform with KD. But what about the logistics involved in getting cards to a player to sign them and then him getting them back to the company? Kobe, RIP, would apparently get them done in person at a hotel room with the card company rep right there with him. So it was all done and dusted and other athletes, I bet it's real hard to pin them down to get them to do it. Is signing cards seen as a pain in the ass or does it bring them to some 
bring some nostalgia out of them because maybe they collected them as a kid. Uh, so I've had trading card deals, so I can comment on this firsthand. So the way a lot of the trading card deals now do it is they they will meet you on the road. They'll rent out a, a little meeting room or ballroom, and you'll basically sit there with a rep that watches you, and you sign. They're either a bunch of hologram stickers or the actual cards themselves, and they make sure that it's you signing them. When I first got into the league, they would send them to your house. The problem with that was they, they started to realize that um, players – boys or personal assistants or whoever <laughs> were signing him. <laughs> so, you know, because it is a lot of cards, like you'll get, you know, when I was a rookie, I had a deal with, I think it was um, Upper Deck or someone, and they'd send a thousand cards at a time. And that, that'd take you a few hours at minimum. And, you know, you, you want to knock them out and they usually give you five or six days and then you box them up and send them back. So I never, I never did it, but I know, I know some people that definitely had their PAs doing it. So the card companies got smart. And then now basically we'll, we'll have someone there citing the cards. They can send them to your house as well. And then a guy just shows up and you sit there and you sign. There are fans out there that send cards to, to the team headquarters or the club and try to get you to you know sign them and then put them in a return envelope and send them back. I've done that before. Um, I don't do it all the time, but I've done it a fair bit because there's, there's a fair few that come in. Like a guy like Steph Curry would have, you know, he'd be barely be able to play basketball if he had to sign all the cards. So it's it's not so much a pain in the ass to me. We get paid for the the trading card deals. So it's a good little side earner. And then also before and up, mainly before NBA games, after we've finished our warm up and you're going back to the locker room, there'll be kids with, with cards kind of hanging over the bleachers. And I'd usually sign five, 10, 15 of those, you know, for two or three minutes as I'm going to my locker and that that's kind of it but um yeah if you ever run into a fan in the street with a card I collected cards as a kid I'm not sure about you pro but it was huge in Australia in the 90s and was part of my life of basketball was was collecting trading cards yeah same same here um obviously you know I don't have any player stories with um with signing cards but with Jordan uh, Michael Jordan I worked his camp in Santa Barbara and he'd have this kids camp at the University of California Santa Barbara and what he would do is 750 kids per session, two sessions. And I was there because they brought in college kids to work out, like, you know, draft picks for the next year. The top college kids would come in before he was affiliated with a team. When he was retired, he would, he would pay, Nike would pay for this. And it was unbelievable. The kids were not very good players, but they came in all over the world for MJ. And the big thing about MJ's camp was Michael was there in the morning and he was there at night. And he was very accessible at morning and night. He wasn't there usually during the afternoons. But um, at the end of camp, now he would play as well at night. He would play against college guys, NBA players at night. And everybody, like, they'd pack the gyms. You know, they packed the gym, like, four or 5,000 people watching uh, just to get a glimpse of him playing. But at the end of the week, the big part about working the camp or going to the camp is he sits in a room and... All 750 kids walk through this room. There's two doors, one in, one out. And he would sit there for about four hours. And he would sign anything that you want signed. Jersey, card, oil painting I've seen. I've seen I've seen it all. And this will be my Rogues and Bogues uh, story segment. It's a pretty, pretty cool thing. So Don, uh, a guy from like Donris or whatever, I forgot the card company, like, like the person said, he'd be sitting right there and they would give you a sticker and sign in a book what every every signature was. So if like a trading card, it will, it will give a little sticker on the trading card, make sure the, the signature was legit to, to give you proof. And then he would write in this book like uh, a trading card number 12,221 or what have you. So this camp went on forever. You know, it's probably went over 10 years and everybody knows about it. So collectors would get smart. And what they would do is 
they know the day that the kids were going to come in with all their stuff to get signed. So you'd see probably about 200, 300 yards away from the gym, all these people, like like five or six shady dudes with one sneaker and would say, all right, you sign this for me. I'll give you like 200 cash and you can go and you you know give me the give me the sneaker at the end of the day and then you get 200 cash and then you don't obviously you don't get you know anything signed for yourself so the college players would all take the deal for the 200 <laughs> and MJ would be there and be like come on man you think i was fucking born yesterday i know what you're going to do you know, I ain't signing this bullshit and he would just like throw the shoe back at the kid and uh it was pretty funny i don't know if he signed it at the end or not but the funny thing is he knew like like kids would come in with like they thought they get it like authentic jerseys. He goes, nah, that jersey's a fake, man. That 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 this pair of Jordans fake. Like he could spot it like that. MJ was one of the smartest dudes you'd ever see. But he would sit there both for four hours and they would have somebody there, like they would shut it down like every 30 minutes or so. And he would just sit there and sign for like and he had two sessions of camp so he had like like 10 days two five-day sessions and he would there be there like a professional man signing like for three or four hours but it was funny as hell when those college kids because they were going to make a quick two three hundred bucks and he knew because he goes where's the other shoe at man he knew (laughs) he only had the one shoe mj mj was the best man mj apparently he's one of that's my story he's one of the hardest signatures to get apparently um i think he was he was known to be ver- yeah he doesn't really do I mean he doesn't I've got a bunch of stuff signed because I worked the camp for like five or six years but yeah he doesn't he he has no problem saying no to you no problem and at then all the flip side a flip side I heard, sorry to cut you off on the flip side I because my agent was interning with David Falk when Falk was his agent yep apparently if, if you if you were you know working for a team or working for the agency or working for even MJ hired you as a PA or whatever and you asked for an autograph from MJ the story went that he would sign it and you'd get a you know a letter the next day that you were no longer employed <laughs> yeah it's unbelievable man yeah. MJ was like he's ridiculous of how professional the dude is like you know he's very well spoken I mean, he could speak to anybody. He could speak to CEOs. He could speak to a kid on the street and anything in between. And he doesn't put up with any bullshit. And he looks you in the he's a frightening dude. You know, when he looks you with those eyes, he's a frightening dude when he gets mad. What Grover told me a million stories about him, about, you know, just how professional he was. Anybody in his, like, he didn't travel with a crew either. He had one dude. His name was George. And, and you saw him probably in the last dance. George... I mean, the story goes, MJ gets drafted. Uh, The next day, no one's there to pick him up at the airport. And, you know, there's no internet back then. It was like in 84. And this guy, George, who was a limo driver, his person didn't show up that he's supposed to be picking up. And he he sort of knew a little bit about sports. He goes, you're Michael Jordan, aren't you? He goes, yeah. He goes, you want to ride? He goes, yeah, I don't have anyone picking me up. So the guy picks him up, drops him off, gives him his business card. If you need anything, let me know. I think his, like, parents came into town a week later and he like this guy picked him up and did his job. The guy's worked for him has been his right hand man ever since. But MJ will take care of you. But like yeah, he. But if you act out of line, a he's he, he's not gonna like he's not gonna let anybody else do it. He'll do it himself. But he'll tell you right to your face like, all right, it's time to you know it's time to pack up. But yeah, I could definitely believe that story. I remember the first time, like again, same thing with Kobe. All I want to do is learn footwork from him. And you could tell he's so he was such 
he knew exactly like a million people would ask him for things. And I was going through, he had a thing as well during camp where you could take an individual picture with him and you take a group picture with your team. And I asked him, I said, can I, can I ask you some questions about footwork? Where? He goes, what, footwear? No, I'm not giving you any footwear. No, 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 no. Footwork, footwork. He goes, ah, ah, yeah. And he would spend, you know, most players you ask about footwork and things, Bogues, and the guy, and, and they they look at you like you know they they look at you like they ate a snow cone too fast, like you know they they have no idea how to like this guy broke down every little thing about footwork angles where you want to put your hand your body you know where the defender is going to react to the guy was ridiculous i know we're talking about trading cards but yeah the guy was fantastic. <laughs> that's all right that's the whole point of the podcast just we just go on in little tangents but um yeah i guess mj's whole thing was that if he kind of allowed you in his circle of employment or working for him or his people he, he didn't want you to look at him as mj he wanted you to work for yeah. him so it's a fair enough thing where if, you, if you're if you're autograph hunting or trying to make a quick buck out of him you're gone and i've, I've yeah. known a f- few players to do that since as well and, and it's h- kind of hard you know I've, I've been in that position as well where you know you're trying to hire people or, or do different things business wise and and you get that, that that feeling that they're they're more of a fan than, than they are focused on the job it ever rarely ends well and that's just something you've got to navigate along the way but yeah i, I just heard there was no nonsense with mj and you were out of there yeah i also heard he had people working for him that searches the internet about like stuff that people sell of MJ's and to make sure the people that are like either working for him or work camp or whatever, they weren't trying to sell his stuff. Now, I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but I could that definitely see it, man. I have, I have a fantastic story, which we'll get on right now. There you go. See? Yeah. All so right. my, my agent was telling me there was, there was some guy who had a cafe called Michael Jordan's cafe. I don't know what city it was in. It was somewhere in America. So they're like, man, what the fuck? Like, you can't have a cafe named Michael Jordan's Cafe. <laughs> so they sent, they sent a cease and desist letter. Mm-hmm. So he he responds and says, no, like, this is my cafe. <laughs> so they get into negotiations with the lawyers. The dude was like, my name is Michael and I'm from the country of Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. So they're like, okay, cool. So then can you explain why you have Michael Jordan's jersey in your cafe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and why you've got half his insignia and Bulls merchandise. So they, they'd obviously sent someone out there before the letter, taking photos of all the shit in there. And they're like, dude, like just, we're going to sue the shit out of you, change the name of the cafe. And that was a prime example of them, you know, people just trying to make money off, off Michael Jordan's name and Kobe Bryant's name, LeBron James. Happens every day, right? But that was just a funny story. I still remember to this day. But um, we could go on with that forever. Let's move on to the next one. Um, the question is from Oscar. Docks in Bathurst, New South Wales, and it goes with to do with the recent James Harden trade. There were lots of rumors that Ben Simmons was involved and would be traded to Houston. Apparently, his agent had informed him about an expected trade to be ready. So, how hard would it be to continue to play for that team, knowing that they almost traded you? Do you know players, or have you been in a situation where players don't connect with their team anymore due to those situations? Does it occur often? It does. I don't think usually the agents wouldn't tell you because they know that if you're a smart agent, you're not telling your guy, hey man, you might be traded and then you're not, especially if you know it's a guy that's kind of hot-headed or, or might get down about himself confidence-wise. You kind of Most smart agents will keep it till the final minute until it's been signed and approved and then tell you. But I mean, some agents might argue that it might get leaked and they want they want you to hear it from them first, but um, it can affect you. Every player is different. As Pro always says, every situation, every mindset is unique in its own right. It can be a little daunting for a young player. I mean, Ben Simmons is supposed to be the the keys to that organization, himself and Joel. So for him to be in trade rumors for an aging James Harden probably 
I don't know if it dents his confidence a little bit. He's playing pretty well still, but it might, it might not. It might motivate him more. It could have the flip side effect where he's like, okay, you, you guys want to trade me then? And then in the off season, he says, fuck you, trade me. You know, so there's a million different directions that can go. I don't think there's a, a right answer to this, but I've seen it both ways. I've seen some guys use it as motivation to continue to play well. I've seen some guys just be complete professionals and understand, hey, it's part of the business. I was in trade rumors, but I'm still here and I'm going to play as hard as I can. And then I've seen some guys go off the reservation and be absolute douchebags. So I guess it's 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 a mix, right? Yeah. I mean, 95% of the players are either going to get cut, traded, you know, some type of transaction. It's just part of it. This is not a Disney movie, you know, in your NBA career. You're not going to stay with one team for 20 years. You know, the Dirks and the, you know, the Dirks and the Kobe's, those things don't really exist in the NBA. It's something you have to get ready for. The bigger thing is you want to get your career going before you start getting down the trade debt, you know, to getting traded once, twice, three times. It's going to happen. It happens to almost everybody. And you have to have a professional mindset with it. And it's tough because you can't tell people how to feel. Some We're all sensitive to something. And I agree. Like, I remember in Dallas, I'd be working out rookies and we'd see Donnie Nelson walking in and out of his office with like three hours to go to trade deadline and we're like holding our breath that like this could be the last time we work out and um you know because you, you could be in the trade and you know because these players some some of them were on the trading block and hoops hype and things like that some players could handle it some some don't but again we talk about getting punched in the face in this thing and and dealing with adversity and that's part of it trade deadline everyone's going to get affected by it because every there aren't many untradeable players in the league and you have to just bring it every day. Again, you have to do the same thing. I heard this in a in a Mike Tyson movie once. His old tra- his old coach, his old trainer said, "Again, being a professional is doing the same thing every day, regardless of how you're feeling or what's happening around you." And that's that's what being a professional is. And you know, some people tweet that out and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know what a professional is," and and but they don't know it's a business like we talk about. But they th- then they like they don't handle it well, especially when they're in trade trade rumors. It's just one of those things you have to deal with as a professional. You have to deal with those trade rumors. You're probably going to get traded at some point. You know, everybody gets told they're you know they're going at some point. So it's just something you have to deal with. But everybody's going to handle it differently. Everybody is. Yeah, and there's a few different aspects to it trade deadline days is a circus it's it's just like you said as soon as you see the gm come anywhere near the team you're like holy shit holy shit holy shit who's gone we used to kind of joke around about it man i'm out of here guys all right you know messing around (laughs) there were rumors i think clippers a couple of years ago had a flight around trade deadline and they they didn't take off they wouldn't take off until it was confirmed yep the deadline had passed. So it's a, it's a nervous time. I mean, look, if you've got kids in school, you love the city you're at, you've got a family there, it can be nerve-wracking. I guess the hardest part for me was when you're a young player and you're trying to find your own and the organization is telling you everything you want to hear. You're our guy. What do you need? You know, we love you. We'd never trade you. And then you hear you're in trade rumors. That's when you get that welcome to the NBA. This is a big boy league. It's... Everyone's your friend. Oh, no. You know what I like? You're, we're family. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just throw your kid out. Yeah. I mean, when you cut your family? I mean, I think some people would like to, you know, trade their family sometimes, but trade family members don't get traded. They don't get cut. But you do hear that the, with your family. And hey, look, as a, it, it happens both ways. Players screw teams and they leave in free agency and they don't, 
you know, teams that really developed them and put a lot of time in, and they screw them to, to go for a couple of bucks more to another team. And teams are going to screw players sometimes where they're going to like, Yo, you're our guy, you're our guy, you're our guy, and then you're traded in a month or two months or six months. Yeah. It just, it, it, it is what it is. It's a face value thing, right? You got to once, once, but that's like, I guess my point is as a young, naive, kid from the university of utah where everything was cultural everything was kind of about the team i guess you valued your coach and your athletic director's opinion on everything you listen to them and then when you get to the big leagues it's like they'll literally tell you on trade deadline day like hey we would never trade you man we're getting offers but we'd never <laughs> take them like these these teams are crazy and then an hour later you get a call from your agent saying oh yeah sorry man we traded you and i saw that with um desmond mason was one so i came in my rookie year and i was I was supposed to be a five, but I was a bit light, so they were a little bit worried. And Desmond Mason was there, and I, I guess they told him at the time that, you know, we're, we're definitely not trading you. We love you here. You're a good veteran. We need you here. And traded him like two weeks later for Jamal McGlaw to get a, another five man, and he was livid. Like, he went he went public with it. He was pissed and traded him to OKC, I think, or I can't remember exactly where, but he was pissed about it because he basically got told that he wouldn't get traded. And what's funny about that story is he then re-signed with us like two years later. <laughs> it's the same organization. So <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like in the moment it can be confronting and hurtful, but you got to get on with life. I mean, that's the NBA and and it's like, it's like any other job. You can get fired and moved and the only difference is you might be moving to Toronto or the other side of the country and you just got to kind of suck it up, pack a suitcase and, and figure it out. And that's why back to that Steve Kerr saying that I've always, always kind of commented on was, you know, you guys aren't only paid for your talents on the court. It's all the other bullshit you got to deal with along the way. No one's going to feel sorry for you, yeah. but you guys are going to understand you're in the public eye. You might not be able to get that quick meal with your family without someone taking a photo. You could get traded on a whim. You could get cut. You could get waived. I mean, there's players that have been traded five times in a season. So that's a part of your compensation is your contract and, and the good money that you're earning. Yeah. There's some players that get traded three times on draft day yeah i've had to take players off of the bus going to like going to the arena after trade you know before right after a trade's done and he didn't know about it and his agent didn't get to him and we had a you know we had to take a guy off a bus i remember a friend of mine in phoenix like the bus stopped and they i think the isaiah thomas trade maybe where he like the literally the bus stopped like leaving the airport and they're like nah you gotta you gotta get off you know, you, you've been traded. It, it's Just on the side of the highway. <laughs> yeah, side of the highway, right? You got to Uber. You see Isaiah Thomas, and, you know, on the side, you know, Ubering. No, I'm just joking. But seriously, like, it it just, it happens, man. It's just one of those things. And look, teams aren't going to tell you for the most part. In some situations, maybe 1% of the time, they'll be like, look, we're going to deal you. You know, it, it's going to happen. It, I, we don't know where or when yet. Because it's just not good business to tell somebody they're going to get traded and then a couple of things. Danny Ainge taught me this early in my career when I was in Boston when they traded, uh, when they, we traded a player. And he goes, Oh, that's going to hit them. This is before Twitter. He's like, This is going to hit the media in about an hour. And I go, What are you talking about? He goes, Right after, you know, right after the, all these players know that a couple of guys have been traded, they're going to call their agents, their agents going to call the media, and that's it. So they don't want to tell a player early because you know they're going to tell somebody and it's going to get out. So, they just got to keep the ship afloat. If they're going to make a trade, fine. Everybody's going to be their guy. We're not trading you. And they just want to keep everything sane, you know, and they don't want anybody to go off the deep end, especially like you said. I remember we traded when I was in Boston, we traded a kid named Marcus Banks to LA and we traded him. And then something happened with the physical and we had to like bring him back and he, in, like, basically, yeah, we traded you and then we had to come back and actually, I think he played for us for like a week and then we we made another trade. But, you know, 
uh, there's some wild things that happen with teams with trades, like trades that don't go through, that get nixed at the last minute, trades being reported, but you go to the trade call with the NBA. Like when you make a trade, both teams have to call the league and do what's called the trade call. If you don't get that trade call in by exactly the time that 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 trade line's done, uh, trade deadline's done, they don't they don't approve the trade. So there might be a trade that happens in theory, but they couldn't get the trade call done in time. And they have to, re, you know, renounce the trade. That's happened before, and right? Have to and I think it was, yeah, leaked. that's happened. The trade time. was leaked to the media, and it didn't go through because it was like three minutes late or something. Oh, it's crazy! Yeah, it's crazy. Fun times. Anyway, story time, baby. This is the fun time. Finish off the pod. I um, I spoke to an old rookie of mine, Festus Azili, the other day. I checked in with him, and he's trying to make a comeback still for everyone out there. So if anyone has a roster spot, he's he's been out of the league now two or three years, had a, had a bad knee, but trying to make a comeback. But it kind of set me on the path mentally about he was my rookie and, and kind of the things that used to happen. And I guess with rookies coming in the league, there, there is there is kind of a, a transition period you have to make. You're, you're basically an errand boy for the first year. I had, um, who were my veterans? Jamal McGlure, Irvin Johnson, Desmond Mason. And um, they were they were pretty, they weren't too hard on me. I had to get, I had to buy a birthday cake whenever it was someone's birthday. So I had to go and buy the fucking cake. So I had to go to like the supermarket. <laughs> they wouldn't even eat it. It'd just be like something to do with, mess with me. I had to get Krispy Kreme donuts every shoot around. And then Jamal McGlure was a killer. So this dude would, we'd go, probably told this story before, we'd go on the road and he would, he would call me at like midnight or after midnight every fucking road trip the night before a game. Call my room phone, not my mobile. Call my room phone and be like, young fella, what time shoot around tomorrow? And I'd be like, 10 a.m. He's like, all right, cool. What time's the bus? 9.30. Cool. Okay, thanks. So then I was like, man. So I used to go up to him as we're getting off the bus the night before, getting to the hotel, I go up to him and be like, hey, Jamal, the bus is at 9.30 tomorrow morning, man. Like, shoot around at 10. He's like, all right, thanks, young fella. That night, I get a phone call. <laughs> Same thing. 1 o'clock in the morning. And I don't know if he was fucking with me or if he forgot, but I'm pretty sure he was fucking with me at that point. But the good thing about him was whenever I went out with him, he'd look after me. Like he'd take care of all the meals. I remember a few times we were at a bar and a few guys were getting mouthy and he like he was like ready to go. So I really liked Jamal and he's an assistant now with the Raptors. What other things we have to do? That, that was basically it. The, the killer with Milwaukee when I got there, there was rookie night. So probably frowned upon today. It probably doesn't go on anymore. But we had to do, as rookies, you had to do a song. You had to sing a song in front of the team dressed in a diaper or a nappy. Huh. Right. I was kind of a shyer guy when I was younger, believe it or not. And I remember it was myself, myself and Ursine Ilyasova were the rookies. Now Ursine Ilyasova spoke not a word of English, right? And he was like you think I'm white, he was white as a sheet of paper, like, you know, just his complexion, right? So I still remember we're at Green Bay, we're playing in Green Bay, we're playing a preseason game, playing someone up there. It was one of our rural preseason games. We go to the Brett Favre Steakhouse one night, they book out a, a private room. And they've been railing me all after this. Like, you better have a song ready, young fellow. You got to do this. And I was hearing like, oh, I've heard nap. I've heard I got to wear a diaper or a nappy. I'm not sure what's going on. So they basically, we eat the meals. We're all sitting there. And then Michael Red goes to the back, back of the room somewhere, comes back, throws me a diaper, throws Ursa on a diaper. And he's like, go put these on. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm like, I'm not putting this on. It's like, young fella, go and put those on. So, all right, go around the corner. Nothing but that on. So I'm butt naked besides a, a grown, I think they bought like the grown man diapers. Chuck those on. Ursan does the same, and I sung. I sung the national anthem of Australia, <laughs> and Ursan sung some shit in in Russian <laughs> that no one knows to this day. But that was kind of the hazing 
shit you had to go through, right? And I took it in stride, got it done, and then then they didn't bother you again. Now, on the flip side, if you ever spoke ill to a veteran or if you ever said, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this, I heard stories of, of the shit they used to do to him. Like they would, they would mess with guys. I never did that because I understood, look, I'm the number one pick. I'm going to get it a little bit harder than everyone else. I'm just going to do whatever the veterans ask and that's it. And I got through my year and I was good. I remember we were in Golden State. Kent Bazemore was the first one. He had, um, I guess they were in the showers. Kent Bazemore, you know, NBA seniority goes. A veteran, Jarrett Jack, came in the shower and said, hey, Rook, let me get that shower. And Kent Bazemore said, Kent Bazemore was non-guaranteed. He made the training camp roster and then was on a non-guaranteed deal for the minimum. Made the roster for the year, but was making, I don't know what it was back then, pro four or 500K if that. Um, so take away taxes. Yeah, not much at all, right? So he, Jared Jack walks in and says, let me get that shower, young fella. And, and Kent said, I think just as a joke, but kind of aggressively, oh, you're lucky I'm done anyway, and walked out. And Jared Jack was like, what did you say? <laughs> He's like, you're lucky I'm done anyway, and kind of laughed it off. And Jared Jack was like, all right, young fella, okay. So he then... Went to the arena people and he piled up about 50 bags of popcorn. These are like big, they're about three feet, one meter bags of popcorn. So the end of every game, whatever popcorn was left over, Jared Jack was like, let me get that bagged up. So there'd be about six or seven bags a game. So about six, seven games in stockpiled popcorn at the practice facility. And Kent Bazemore had just bought uh, an Audi A5, loved the car, coupe, beautiful. He thought he was balling and it was a very nice car and if, especially for him on a minimum paycheck and they filled that thing up to the roof in popcorn, like filled it up as high as they could get, shut the doors, then opened the sunroof, kept filling it and that was a payback they, they did to this kid. He, he said that like a year later, he'd be driving around in the summer, he turned his AC on and a popcorn kernel flew out and hit him in the face. <laughs> you know? I heard that story. I heard that story. It's actually on YouTube. It's on tape when we did it. So that was yeah. one. Yeah, the other one was Festus Azili. He had, I'd always be bantering with guys and a lot of times guys didn't know if I was serious or not, just being a dickhead, you know, and I was just getting on Festus a little bit about something, just talking shit to him. And he he made an off-the-cuff remark as I was walking out of the room and thought I didn't hear it. Something kind of pretty laden, like like a lot of swearing, pretty vulgar, but like more banterish. But I know he was joking, but I heard it. So I turned around, I said, what'd you say? Oh, no, no, nothing bogues, nothing bogues. Like played it <laughs> off and I'm like, all right, man, cool. So I was like, I need to do something outside of the popcorn. The popcorn things played out. Everyone's done that, right? So I was getting a few cars, a few of my muscle cars were getting work done. So I called the guy running the shop. I said, hey, I need you to come to our practice facility and, and take the tires off a guy's car. So he came he come by, get him in the facility through our practice. Equipment manager, equipment manager lets him in while we're practicing. He had a brand new Mercedes S-Class, S550 or whatever it was, really nice car. Him and Harrison had the same car, right? So I went and basically left the car on bricks, took, took off all four car tires, got them put in the locker room. I put them in the middle of the locker room. Oh, jeez. So I, I, I make sure as soon as we're done with practice, I get my shots up, Fess is still working out. I come to the locker room. I'm just sitting there waiting, right? And all the guys kind of knew like, holy shit, whose tires are these? He comes back in the locker room and he's like, man, whose tires are those? I go, oh yeah, they're Harrison's. Harrison wasn't in the locker room at the time. I said, oh yeah, they're Harrison's. Like, I'm just messing with him. And he's like, oh. And then he sits down and he looks at the rooms again and he's like, I've got the same car as Harrison. He goes, man, are they my tires? I'm like, no, I don't think so. So he walks outside and they've got him on camera for that as well. Basically had had his car on bricks. And the funny part was he calls he calls Mercedes assist. Like, you know, when you have an accident, they come service your car. He calls them and says, oh, you know, how can we help you? Uh, I, brought, I need to get my tires put on my car. And they're like, oh, okay, so you have a flat tire? He's like, no, 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 no. I have, I have four tires. I need all four of my tires on the car. They're like, what do you mean? Like, they could not. First, they said, is this a crank call? Like, are you messing with us? Like, please don't mess with us because it's an emergency service. He's like, no, no, no. All four of my tire, my wheels are off the car. So then he was on the phone for like 30 minutes trying to explain that one of his teammates had taken the 
the wheels off the car as a prank and he ended up being stuck at the facility till till basically nighttime till he got his wheels back on the car and that was just one return favor I gave I gave Festus. I I got a quick one. I know I said I, I was done with story time, but uh, somebody that I used to work out that played a, with the Denver Nuggets early two thousands. They played with James Posey. Um, he you know James Posey was a rookie. I guess he had these like electric white leather shoes that were like three four hundred bucks. And everybody hated him. And he was a rookie. Hated hated the shoes. And after a game, they were like, I think like Nick Van Exel and those guys were like vets. He goes, hey, Rook, don't wear those shoes or you're going to be in trouble. Do not wear those fucking shoes. And like after the game, they won. And he's like, yeah, like singing to himself that he's going to wear his brand new shoes. He's got a date tonight. So when he was in the shower... Everybody, they they went to the equipment guy. They took Sharpie markers and everybody signed his shoes. So here he is in the tunnel with like like a like a three thousand dollars suit on with flip flops because because he can't wear his shoes because his whole team (laughs) signed his fucking shoes because he thought you know he thought he was slick like singing to himself and all those vets are like absolutely not. The whole team signed his like four hundred dollars shoes and he couldn't wear them that night. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I I remember when we were younger, the vets. Or anyone really, if you wore something outrageous to a game or to training, they had this thing where they'd they'd get the clothes and put them in the middle of the locker room on the floor so everyone could see. And then there there was like fights sometimes. Like guys would get really pissed off about it. Like, yeah, because it was a bit expensive. Some of the stuff's Gucci, some of the stuff's whatever, like leopard print stuff. And there was always one or two guys that would be notorious for messing with guys. But yeah, at times, man, it got it got (laughs) it got pretty heated. You had to kind of uh, break some things up. No soup being thrown, but they got pissed. No soup, no soup. But it was, yeah, usually usually didn't get to punches, but a few times you had to had to get into it. But that's, I mean, that's a part of the league, pro. I mean, you'd know, like, you got to pay your dues, especially as a rookie. And the rookies that usually understood it and didn't have too much arrogance about it usually got by. I would have loved to have had Kevin Porter Jr. as a rookie. That would have been an interesting one. Oh, imagine you two together. Talk about talk about the odd couple. <laughs> that would have been great. All right, man. Another, one, another episode to wrap up. Thanks for your time, everyone out there. Listen in, subscribe. Rogue Bogus on all the social media channels, Hoop Consultants on all the social media channels. Send through Q&As for next week and we'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks, guys.